Finn, do you remember? Oh. Yeah, I think so. A long time ago, I was you, sort of. And I crashed on Earth and became a butterfly or some biz. And I guess it was just some random, absurd thing. Just a joke I've been playing out for centuries. Who's creating the joke? Are you? And if so, then are you my creator? Uh, maybe? I don't know. Probably not. Probably not, but who knows? I've been around forever and experienced so much impossible junk. I've embodied all that is good and evil. And now we're here. It's unprecedented. And I give you a choice. Come with me to the end and the beginning, or struggle here a while like a beautiful autumn leaf. You're telling me to abandon all this stuff, but you're not really making it sound bad. It's not bad. I'm just giving you the choice of a new mode of existence. I feel like I put a lot of work into this meat reality. I'd like to see it through. Fair enough. Prepare to discorporate. I'm sure some of you know that clip is from Adventure Time, where Finn, while talking to the Sophianic Catalyst Comet, makes a choice to not return to the Pleroma and instead remain as a Johnny Cash body Shatva in the Kenoma. Adventure Time certainly has a Gnostic groove. My five kids love it. Vance and his son love it. I have barely watched it, I admit, because I put most of my energy into taking care of my five kids and serving thee here in the desert of the real at A.M. Bagnostic Radio. I have made a choice, and hopefully you have too, in being a Johnny Cash Bodhisattva rebelling against this mechanistic universe while reminding everyone of that bittersweet song of beauty and remembrance. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us? All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams. You know the deck is stacked and the cosmic dice is loaded. If death and taxes are the only certainty in life, something is mucho wrong with the fabric of the universe. And this is the universe where they cancel the OA after two seasons, where men have nipples, where infinity and beyond didn't work out for Buzz and Woody in the end, and so many other psychic coituses interrupt us or spiritual blue balling don't call it a circle of life but the circle jerk of archons there's only one hell princess the one we live in now as the saying goes I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money-hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. People out here, they don't even know the outside world exists. Might as well be living on the fucking moon. There's all kinds of ghettos in the world. It's all one ghetto, man. Giant gutter in outer space. 
We're solving all those problems, you see? Because again, we have made the choice like Finn to bring a greater meaning to the universe. An ultimate orgasm of kindness and love. We are divine and we are human where the falling angel meets the rising ape. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else to take down those armies of archons, egregores, and alien robots named Pandora. We're solving those problems by being a Johnny Cash body shatva. Existentialists in our Christendom and always giving the finger to the creator gods. As well as giving the finger to that idiot telling us about looking at the finger of the guy pointing at the moon. We get it. Patience, my son. To summon your power for the conflict to come, you must first have power over that which conflicts you. Okay, am I the only one who finds these sayings just a little bit formulaic? If you want to push something down, you have to pull it up. If you want to go left, you have to go right. It's Your temper is very quick, my friend. But until you learn to master your rage... Your rage will become your master? That's what you are going to say, right? Right? One red pill suppository for all of this, as I, your host Miguel Connor, have taught you is in the ancient Gnostic texts that are so relevant in this Philip K. Dick world. Those writings crackling with a sci-fi sensibility of alien gods and universes made of light. Why is that? As William T. Volman wrote in the New York Times, As a corpus, the Gnostic scriptures are nearly incoherent like a crowd of sages, mystics, and madmen all speaking at once. But always they call upon us to know ourselves. And as Carl Jung said, the greatest honor in life is to finally meet your authentic self. As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. Thus and thusly, we have the pleasure of being joined again by James Brattingham, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Truth, What is Truth? Holy Wisdom and the Logos of God, the Four Lost Apocryphal Christian Gospels, and the Secret Revelation of John. In our last interview, James discussed the Gospel of Philip, now he'll share with us about the Valentinian Gospel of Truth, the Sethian Secret Book of Juan, and the Stoic Gnostic Gospel of Mary, including their theology, history, and cultures that gave them birth. With these texts, you'll know yourself more at the end of the interview. Get closer to your authentic self. I recommend you also listen to past shows on these works or get my books, Voices of Gnosticism and Other Voices of Gnosticism, where lauded historians and the very translators of the Nag Hammadi Library lay it down concerning the Gnosticoi. It is said that the future is always born in pain. The history of war is the history of pain. If we are wise, what is born of that pain 
matures into the promise of a better world because we learn that we can no longer afford the mistakes of the past. And to really understand the ethos of these texts, specifically the secret book of Juan, let me quote the great Robert Price now. The goal of Gnostic salvation, this is a mythology. It is a story of how things came to be the way they are. A story that sets the pattern for everything forever. Or as this myth has it, until forever is over. The ultimate goal of humanity is to come to understand this myth. The Gospel of the Secret Book of John in such a way that the pattern of devolution from the fullness of God to humanity's imprisonment in matter is reversed. To understand the events of our fall reveals to us a map for our journey of ascent. We will emerge free from matter, rise above Yaldabaoth and his demons, return to an established position in the mind of God, and never leave again. The mistake of Sophia will be resolved and wisdom will be fully restored to God. The mind of God will be fully sane and healed. The Gnostic myth is a tale of the growth of God's mental disintegration. I'm not really your wife. I'm not really my husband. On some level, it's all pretend. How many versions were there? Ninety. This is the last one. Wow. I've destroyed billions of people with the thought. And you'd like to think that it's painless? The myth reaches its most unhappy form when the Godhead has not only forgotten who God is, but does not even know that God truly exists and begins to worship the artificial deity Yaldabaoth as creator of an external world. In the depths of God's fall, the Godhead believes itself to be human and worships Yaldabaoth as the God of the Hebrew Babel. When the Godhead ceases to know itself, God seems to be human and falls into the multiple personalities we know as human beings. Humankind is fallen God. The goal of Gnostic salvation, then, is to bring self-awareness back to God, which means that divine self-knowledge is the religious goal of human life. If the body shells the soul, and the soul is divine grind, then God is earth, God is us, God is all around. I'd also like to read an old quote from Brother Spark on Gnostic dualism and world-hating, because I feel it also gives perspective to the Gnostic corpus as a whole and dispels a lot of misunderstandings still happening today. Here it is. Does dualism mean, quote, hating nature? No, it does not. It expresses the vast gulf between the kenoma and the pleroma. As beautiful as any material thing is to us, it is but a dim reflection of truer, more real spiritual objects in the pleroma. Yes, bunnies are adorable. 
Gnostic dualism isn't saying they aren't. It is saying that a pleromatic bunny is so fucking cute it would explode your face, a la Raiders of the Lost Ark. The idea that nature is somehow a direct extension of God is fundamentally opposed to the very heart of Gnosticism. It is indeed an idea that makes the holder not a Gnostic. It is also, I think this is obvious, a nauseatingly bourgeoisie and spoiled modern take on nature. Since it is only in the tame bourgeoisie paradises of civilization that, quote, nature is a part of God makes any sense at all. In most parts of the world, and for most of history, nature is a vicious bitch. Mother Nature is a serial killer. No one's better, more creative. Like all serial killers, she can't help the urge to want to get caught. If nature is God, and our pain and suffering is really our failure to recognize that nature is God, like the Neo-Gnostic says, then the Neo-Gnostic realizes God wants to eat babies in their cribs, swim up your urethra, and lay eggs in your bladder, and wipe out entire towns full of innocence with volcanoes and tsunamis. This oneness with nature garbage is communing with Yaldabaoth, not God, to a classical Gnostic perspective. Is the spark hidden in nature? Yes, but it is hidden. Nature isn't the spark. Well said, Brother Spark, and well said too, Bob. Now let us do the interview with James Brattingham. From the demiurge. Is mm-hmm. the demiurge related to the overmind? No, I think the demiurge is like a negative expression of but the But created the universe? How did the overmind get in there to be running the earth, at least? Well, I think of the overmind as the logos, you know? It's the, it's the understanding and self-existence which permeates everything. And the demiurge is the force of matter and time and cosmic destiny that is always trying to lock in the Logos and condition it and make it subject to the rules of the, of the physical universe of space and time. And the Logos is like something from... This is all Gnostic theology, by the way. This is just straight from the book. The Logos is trying to struggle through the labyrinth of the material universe to escape, to rejoin the real source of itself, which is outside of matter. Matter is viewed as an entrapment. This is the A.M. Byte interview. And with us, we definitely have the pleasure of being joined again by James Brattingham. How are you doing, James? Thanks for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure, Miguel. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure is all ours, and I really enjoyed your newest work, Truth, What is Truth? You were uh, a few years ago, I can't remember when, but your uh, interview on the Gospel of Philip was very interesting, very popular too. There is definitely an interest from many sides on these ancient texts and these new translations. As Hall Tassig said, 
in our show, we need more translations because there's still so many insights to be gleaned from these texts. There's still a lot to be found, and these different translations bring more light into being. So, great work, and we're going to get to it. But first, let us say hello to the Moondog, Vance. How are you doing, Vance? Looking forward to a good interview with James. James, uh, I think we talked about it last time in our interview, but maybe, again, it's been a few years since you graced Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. But how did you get into uh, translating uh, these ancient, almost forgotten texts? Well, uh, last time uh, we had moved back from England. We had been in England, and I was... Uh, pr- professor at the University of, uh, of Surrey in Guildford, England. And uh, when we got back, uh, I took another position at a university here in Los Angeles. And during uh, my lunch break, I, I had purchased a copy of the Gospel of Philip. And uh, previously I had purchased the Gospel of Thomas, and I read through it, and I kind of liked it, uh, but I it didn't pop into my mind to alter or do anything to that book with a pencil. <laughs> but the Gospel of Philip that I bought, uh, which is a translation from French, I believe, uh, I there were there were times when I didn't I just didn't like the way the sentence flowed, and so I would write in some. Uh, different words, and um, but I did I did enjoy reading the Gospel of Philip during my lunch break. I'd be alone and relaxing, and uh, and I would take a few moments to to recharge by reading uh, a, a few scriptural lines from the Gospel of Philip and think about them. And uh, uh, as I said, I would sometimes uh, mark in how I felt the sentence might be improved. But it it really didn't pop into my mind to uh, to jump to the complexity of doing a translation until I came across the work of Thomas Patterson Brown, uh, T. B. Brown, and uh, he was he's one of those scholars that was with all the group with James Robinson and um, out there in Pomona that looked at the, the big Nag Hammadi right, cache yeah. <laughs> that they found in the desert. And he did, uh, it's, a, it's a website he has up now. I, I think he passed away just a few years ago. Um, he did uh, the Gospel of Philip, and at the end of each one of his uh, uh, verses, so to speak, he had a little thing that said, uh, uh, what did it say? said i can't remember so it was one of the words that said, like translation or something but i click on it and then boom it would take me right to a uh interlinear translation word for word coptic to english interlinear translation so none of the niceties were in the translation it was just like it was like going to a spanish translation and seeing it said car fast car blue you know it it didn't say it was a fast car right. that's blue, so you got just this very rough translation. But the English words were all there, and then and that fascinated me. I I thought that was that was really interesting because I would 
go back and I'd check and see which word he used for, for example, son of man. He liked, uh, he liked to use son of man. I like to use son of man. Some people today tend to use other terminology like child of humanity, and I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that I'm, I, was, I have as a preference son of man. And so I would, uh, that, that's, that got me interested. It got me thinking, well, there are other uh, Coptic to English interlinear translations of just Coptic to English. Boom, 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 boom. And so you get the very rough translation, but you get it kind of as it comes. And if you've got like three of those or so, you get a feeling for what's there in the core Coptic, what I call the core Coptic. Then today you have usually at least three, if not five, translations that you can go to, see what they've done, and then that gives you also uh, another way to get an insight. It, it might tell you about uh, the tense of a verb, or you might have to look up a Coptic word here and there and so forth, which I did times. Um, so uh, I realized that I had enough material, and I had uh, as many... Uh, Christian scholars use uh, uh, Greek to English interlinear translations, and, and many are very dependent on them. Some aren't. They're, they know Greek entirely and so forth. But uh, I was dependent on these type of uh, translations and then many other translations that uh, had interpreted uh, Coptic to English. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try to see if I can write a gospel of Philip uh, that I like. And that may sound, may sound kind of, oh, I don't know, arrogant. I don't know. It's it's a thing about me. I whatever I get involved in, I uh, usually want to get behind it and around it and so forth. When I was in music school, getting my degree as a classical guitarist at California State University Long Beach, the first bachelor of music for that. Uh, as a guitarist ever, um, I read my first book on the history of guitar. <laughs> and I'd never heard, I'd never known of the history of guitar prior to that time. So, so that gives you a little idea of where, how I got involved in it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes you just, uh, a bug bites you. You know, some people get into model trains or fishing and very few get into this sort of ancient text. Like there's, uh, James, there's a, a, a reoccurring guest. His name is Stefan Hewler. He lives around where you do in uh, Southern California and he's in the entertainment business. I think he has a company that builds stages or something for movie sets. One day he just read Irenaeus. And he became completely smitten with Marcion. He just became so, he's a Jewish guy, oh, really? but he just thought, Marcion, I want to understand about Marcion. I want to read what the church fathers said. So you never know what's going to get us, right? Sometimes it just yeah. happens, it happens. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And being Jewish and knowing Marcion wanted to get rid of anything that was Jewish in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Yeah, but he just found it fascinating. He wanted to go down that rabbit hole and understand what made him tick. Uh, what was this church like in those days? Of from a historical point of view, he just couldn't get enough. So that happened. So why don't we get to your book? Offers several translations. 
I'd like you to pick which one do you think we should start for. We agreed to do the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Truth, and the Secret Book of John. Which one would you like to start with, James? We could start with we could start with the Gospel of Truth, and uh, maybe you can help me out a little bit. I've, I've got I've got an enormous amount of information in my head, uh, <laughs> just exactly what I want to do with it or where I want to go is that's another thing. Yes. But so so the Gospel of Truth. All right, awesome. That, that's exactly what I had on my list. I wanted the Gospel of Truth. Uh, so uh, before we even get to the Gospel of Truth. Where are you today with defining Gnosticism? Can we say Gnosticism, or can we even use the term, or where are you? Well, that's that's you know that's perfect because uh, I wanted to say what Gnosticism means for me, so that I don't mislead anybody. Um, for me, the term Gnostic uh, means a Gnostic Christian. Now, I do consider myself a Christian. Uh, However, I'll, I'll be. I'll, I, I would say this: I am, uh, barring a word from Andrew Philip Smith, I'm an esoteric Christian, <laughs> and so I include in uh, the material I read the Nag Hammadi Library, Hermetic literature, and that type of thing, along with the canonical uh, Gospels and Old Testament and so forth. So for me, the term Gnostic, I'll, I'll, I'll just say Gnostic, but what the, the, the listener should hear is I'm, I really mean Gnostic Christian, generally. I'll, otherwise, I'll you know explain why I don't mean that. And Gnosticism, to me, means Gnostic Christianity. Because um, you know, Gnostics in late antiquity called themselves Christians. I mean, uh, in... 120 AD or common era, they called themselves Christians. They didn't come up and say, hey, I'm a Gnostic Christian, because nobody would have known what they were talking about. Very true. I mean, what? You know it all, Christian? <laughs> <You> know? <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> uh, they, and, and I don't deny, I, I do feel that Simone uh, Petramont is correct that uh, Gnosticism uh, is is dependent. This is my belief. Some some don't believe this, but I believe it is dependent on Christianity and uh, built around Christianity. I, I don't mean though by that to deny that uh, there isn't uh, pre-Christian Jewish Gnosticism, such as Baruch by Justin, or there wasn't Platonic. There's heavily heavy Platonic. Uh, Involvement in uh, Nazi Christ uh, in uh, uh, Gnosticism and Egyptian and other sources that predate Gnosticism. I'm not denying them at all, but for me, um, Gnosticism does not really denote last century's classical theology of Gnosticism with the demiurge and everything. That doesn't mean I'm going to not talk about the demiurge or anything like that. But uh, for me. Just for me, concretely, Gnostic means, or uh, to study Gnosticism means to study hidden, esoteric, mystical, divine, and salvational knowledge. And uh, these are mostly Christian or Judeo-Christian texts. Um, I don't assert them to be canonical, 
but for me, they are counterpoint to the Old and New Testaments, and uh, I think that in reading them, uh, you understand uh, that Christianity is probably developed from a broader uh, uh, horizon than what we think it did, and, and it helps you to understand Judaism and other religions better uh, by becoming aware of Gnosticism. How is that? Good answer. But, of course, things sometimes get complicated, obviously. Uh, the Gospel of Truth, is most scholars agree, is a Valentinian work. Scholars must be agnostic about it being written by Valentinus, since I think the Church Fathers talk about Valentinus wrote a Gospel of Truth, but we don't even know if this is the same one that they are quoting. But then it, we get back to the Valentinians, because the Valentinians are definitely esoteric Christian. But uh, some other scholars have said, well, they're not, they're kind of not Gnostic. We, I mean, as you know, like Bentley Leighton has put, uh, the Gnostics would be more the quote-unquote Sethians with the myth of Sophia and the fall and the demiurge and this sort of intense drama. And uh, scholars have said the Valentians basically, they took the Gnostic myth, but they already had their own sort of esoteric form of Christianity, very platonic closer to the Church of Rome and so forth. What do you think, James? Well, I do think that he's, as many people have, many of the scholars have described him as uh, the uh, great reformer. Um, I, I, yeah, here's a guy that was almost elected Pope, Valentinus. I mean, um, so he... He couldn't be walking around as uh, he, he might have been a high bishop or maybe, I don't know if they had cardinals yet at that time, uh, but he was high. He was high in the, the Christian hierarchy. So he uh, came close to being elected pope. So um, most people believe he was at that time teaching uh, Valentinian uh, uh, Gnosticism uh, or Christianity. So it, it, I mean, I don't think he would have just brought out the uh, uh, theology of the secret revelation of John and plop it down there in front of somebody and say, what do you think of that? You know, it's because <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about that, but uh, that I think that takes a, a little preparation. So, yeah, he, I think he made an effort to himself uh, I don't know whether he wrote the Gospel of Truth or not. I think it's it's a it's a possibility that he wrote it. I've seen the the extracts. You know, they have small extracts of of uh, Valentinus, and um, I can't take a full theology from those ec extracts. So, uh, I, I guess many scholars working on many works that have uh, all sorts of different uh, have many similarities have. I come to the opinion that those core works are Valentinian and they correlate it with, uh, with this uh, man who was highly trained in Platonism. And, um, and so uh, I, I do think he tried to make his scripture fit uh, with the Roman church. In fact, that is part of what I've tried to do with these, with uh, with my translations, 
Uh, maybe it sounds a little bit, a little bit like a betrayal, but I, I have purposely tried to make them um, not really closer to the Roman Church, but closer to a little bit, a little bit closer to canonical Christianity, uh, and uh, I hope that then that uh, people read it and enjoy it more, that they can see in it. Um, how it derives from uh, many common Christian uh, canonical ideas, and but with other ideas too. Um, so uh, uh, that it, it, that is part of why I've written it written it the way I've written it. For example, I, I read many scholars' uh, books, textbooks where they go on and on about the beauty of uh, the gospel of truth. And I would read different translations of the gospel of truth. And um, I wasn't, for for whatever reason, I, it did not strike me as I felt it should. I, I, I thought, everybody talks about this. Karen King talks about it. And... Uh, James Robinson talked about it, and everybody talks about the gospel of truth as being extraordinarily beautiful. And I'd read a translation, I think, well, okay, that's that's all right, uh, uh, translation. That's that's good, but I'm not. It, it doesn't strike me with a with a, in the in the manner that they've described the book. So, so I decided I, I'm going to have to write a really beautiful. Yeah, gospel of truth, and uh, make it profound so that people have the experience that all the other scholars are talking about. I'm kidding. I don't know if I pulled that off or not, but uh, um, it's but a beautiful you know, translation the, you did. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I I really worked at it, and um, I uh, um, so. Here's what really happened with the gospel of truth with me. I uh, once again, Thomas Patterson Brown had written the gospel of truth. He had uh, translated gospel of truth, and at the end of uh, each one of his verses, he had a little tick. You could tick it, and it would take you to uh, the Coptic, and uh, uh, so so I had an interlinear. Uh, English to Coptic translation that I could look at. And I had a number of other uh, translations of uh, Coptic to English. And uh, and then I had the many translations of uh, of the Gospel of Truth by, uh, uh, you know, people like Marvin Meyer and William Barnstone, and, which they're excellent works. Um, but then I tried to... Uh, well, what really happened, and I know I'm kind of sounding hesitant and everything, but I came across a translation by um, a Coptic to English uh, interlinear translation by uh, Kendrick Grobel. You ever hear about Kendrick Grobel? No, I haven't, James. Oh, Kendrick Grobel. His translation was, was done in 1961. And um, I went. I went looking for the book, and sure enough, it was on Amazon, and you could get it 
the old 1961 book. And uh, so I purchased it. And uh, it it came after a few weeks. And then, of course, I realized uh, when I came across this one website that somebody, it's incredible to me, but somebody had completely put the entire Kendrick uh, uh, Grobel Gospel of Truth online. And I, could, I didn't find it until I had the book, but, and, and it wasn't until after I'd read the book. And then I realized that I also had it online, which made uh, a lot of work easier. But Kendrick Grobel's translation, what's so strange to me is he just did, you would have the Coptic, and then he would just do the English as he thought it was best best translated right then and there. And I, prof- I found it profoundly beautiful. <laughs> and so it, it was, so I was hit with how profoundly beautiful it was for the first time, at least for me. So uh, that is one of the major influences on me or for me in going forth and, and then doing my own gospel of truth and then bringing in some uh, some of the terminology I use, I freely admit I try to freely admit up front so everybody knows I interpolate a little bit from uh, New Testament, Old Testament uh, material. Most people will pick it up. Uh, I maybe sometimes somebody will not, but uh, and I uh, interpolate occasionally from another Gnostic uh, text. And um, I even interpolated a, a statement by Max Planck uh, because I thought it was so beautiful about uh, a, sta- a statement he makes about um, what r- reality actually is, which we may come to a little bit later, but uh, we come to it pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's to talk about it. Sure. So that's uh, th- that was. That was my experience with, uh, you know, and I should have gone hunting in the in the uh, uh, in the other uh, translations more deeply because I probably would have found Kendrick Grobel sooner. But Grobel's translation to me was just knocked my socks off, and uh, and I I don't want to bring that experience to other people who aren't Gnostics or who, uh, you know, the gospel of truth, uh, to me, I do not see what is not Christian about the gospel of truth. It just just says it in a different way. Now, you could say it might be best to say that it's it's a Judeo-Christian work, and I, I don't see... I don't see what is heretical about it, except possibly it's it's pretty clear that there's emanation in it, and emanation uh, rather than creation. Uh, the word emanation was ruled by the ancient theologians as uh, a heretical way of creating something. Now, I think today, you know, you... <laughs> I don't know why 
I think it has something to do with uh, with other Christians with the idea that your God's bubbling you off, and so you're part of God, and yet in their mind you have to be a creature completely separate from God, separate separated separated from God. So there there may be something to that uh, in the minds of uh, those who think it's uh, heretical, but I I I don't know why. I mean, emanation doesn't mean pinching off as a bubble or two cells bubbling off each other, but it is a term meant to, you know, like, uh, I'm trying to think of which one this comes out of. I think it's in uh, the secret revelation of John when Barbello is the first thought. Barbello's emanated away from the Father. And so, uh, for some reason, the word emanation is a, a bad word, uh, or it has been considered to be a bad word for some Christians. But I, it's just it's a it's a word. I don't know that it means exactly what uh, the definition that they've given it, given it. Well, James, let's let's yeah, let's back up and maybe talk about the beginning okay. of the gospel of truth. I think uh, interesting. You were talking about, or we were talking about the the Gnostic myth and the Valentinians. I remember you mentioned Simone Petriman's uh, great book, A Separate God, and in it, she, I think it's a she, says that she yes. makes an argument that the secret John comes after the Valentinian myth. I don't know if it, it's true or not, but it's certainly a compelling argument, so I thought I'd put that out with the audience. And also for the audience, uh, James just doesn't give us these great translation. He puts a summary. He gives us different parts of what scholars think, so you'll get a good overview of these Gospels. But I want, what I want to talk about is the central theology of the gospel of truth, a very poetic work. Uh, so many people come to me, different uh, denominations, Christians and Jews, and they say, I just love this. It's a beautiful, you can feel, as you say, James, the, the passion and the faith of the author through it is he's not faking it or trying to be grandstanding. It's beautiful. But it, what I like is you, let's talk about the concept of error. This is a theodicy sort of, the gospel of truth. And what I like is that you, like some other translators, refer to error as a woman. So we'll find out why. I hope people don't get defensive out there. But tell us about the idea of error in the gospel of truth and how it gets the whole of creation going, if you would. Well, um, when I was reading uh, Kendall uh, uh, and Grobel's work, Kendrick Grobel's work, um, when he got to the, uh, the word error, um, he felt that it was uh, very highly personified, um, so highly personified that he was, he, he actually bordered on wanting to call, call it the Demiurge and call, call it Yaldabaoth, another name for Yaldabaoth. However, he didn't, he kind of stays there and he doesn't take that next step and say, well, this is, this is an early, uh, uh, an early um, visualization of uh, the Demiurge or Yaldabaoth in, uh, uh, in a Gnostic work. I 
did take the next step, and I'm going to tell you that I think error uh, is another name for the demiurge. Um, and I think there's uh, here and there the use of she and her is used in the translation and uh, refers to error as she. And the she and error comes from her. And so I'll, without using the word uh, Sophia, um, uh, or, or even I think the word wisdom is used, but uh, but I don't think the word Sophia is used. But it's clear that she and her could mean, at least to me, I felt like it. Really, we're talking about wisdom here, and so very understated. No direct statement that this is uh, wisdom and Sophia. But I say it is, and I don't know why. Um, well, maybe it makes sense in that if this was written by Valentinus, I'm sorry, Valentinus, Valentinus. Val, Val, Valent, we weren't there, so no matter the which way you say it, it's right. Valentinus, <laughs> Valentinus. Um, here's a guy that's uh, going to be elected uh, pope. So... You know, I think uh, one of the reasons why the gospel of truth is so beautiful is everything is understated, but it's still there. So um, uh, wisdom is uh, part and parcel of creation. I mean, we have um, we have Proverbs eight, the great Proverbs eight, where wisdom is all over the place, and in Greek, of course, the word is Sophia. So she and she's called she and she's called her and she's all over the place, and clearly it's before uh, what we consider the uh, the universe is formed, and she's working with God to put together the this at least this local cosmos, and called wisdom everywhere and and of course in Greek she's called Sophia and she comes over into uh, at least uh, to others as Sophia and becomes. As David Hart says, she is a divinity. Uh, this is a, a, a great Orthodox scholar, in my opinion. I think David Hart is the uh, Erasmus. Did I say that right? Yes. Erasmus mm -hmm. for today. Uh, because um, he's translated the New Testament. He's Orthodox uh, Greek. Uh, Christian, but an academic and a scholar. He's not a pastor. <laughs> he makes a point of that. I don't know why, but um, he, he he's he's a a great translator uh, because he goes into another thing we can talk about a little bit later. But he goes into the word the words that are big in um, Gnosticism which is eon and eons. Yeah, we definitely want to, but I still want to focus more on okay. error, and then we can get on some right. of the the saga. So, so the audience knows well, because I find it fascinating. It's a cosmology of the gospel of truth, beyond all this, the poetry and this beautiful narration of uh, redemption and grace. But error comes into the world, with, and I agree with you, I think she's a Sophia figure, but she comes into the world or she gains power because people, God is so vast, people don't, or souls don't see God, and suddenly they, what do they, they sort of feed the darkness with their ignorance and give power to error, or how do you see it, James? 
Well, um, I, I, I think uh, the translation suggests that uh, before we before we find God, or before we have an experiential uh, reckoning with uh, God, or we come to believe in God, or have faith in God, or, or trust God. Before then, before that time, life is scary, and the older you get, it seems scarier and more meaningless and more difficult. And so, part of the gospel of truth is is finding the Father. Uh, that one of the favorite terms for God in the gospel of truth. And so, once you find the perfect Father, you lose. Uh, uh, life begins to make sense, and uh, as we say, you know, everything, everything. There's a meaning to everything. There's a meaning to my meeting you, and you meeting me, and our talking on the phone right now. And so, uh, with that comes other things. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, if you don't find that. Uh, which is in the gospel of truth and is in the other gospels and in the Old Testament uh, literature too. If you don't have that, uh, then life's pretty scary. Now, I guess when you when people grow up entirely, sometimes they become com- comfortable with no belief. But even with belief, life is filled with anxiety and fear and can seem at times meaningless, dark and obscure. And because of that, this being that wisdom brings about, I'm looking at my third verse, thank goodness, I do have wisdom in there, the word wisdom. So wisdom, as we know, it's not all not all of the uh, theology of, uh, uh, that we find in the Gospel of John is brought out here, but uh, wisdom brings about error. That's pretty close. I mean, that's uh, pretty obvious. Uh, and error is a being. And this error is a very strong, powerful uh, divinity itself. Small God. Very much like Yaldabaoth or Yaldabaoth, without using the name. And, uh, and so people turn towards error. Uh, and error can uh, it, it, it the way it's put down here is it can be presented uh, people can pre- be presented with uh, all sorts of different types of philosophies and teachings uh, and these sometimes are not true uh, they're lies they're half truths they're they're untruths but they're so beautiful and seductive that uh, many will take them as a proxy for the real truth. And uh, I call this, uh, I take this one step further than the, uh, than I've seen anybody else do it, the counterfeit false spirit. So this all comes about because uh, wisdom on her own uh, uh, brings about error. Now it's not as clear that uh, she brought error about to uh, show the other gods or the other eons above that she was very capable in producing 
uh, more like their kind. Uh, but um, she is responsible for bringing air about. So that's part of what I would say. It, it moves people away from the true source, the true root, which is the Father, and which is God Most High. Very true, and in, in like these Gnostic sagas, there is a the the result beyond the restoration of wisdom is the assistance of the logos and the logos coming down to earth to open people's eyes to the truth and get them back to the Father. So this brings me to uh, back to David Hart, James, and uh, yes. uh, maybe you want to talk about how he sees aeons, but I love very much how you quote him saying that uh, to understand the logos, which is hard for people to do to get their minds around it, uh, relate the logos to the Tao. Yeah, I uh, I bought uh, uh, his book, his uh, new translation of the, the New Testament, and uh, at one point, he wanted to make a point, uh, David Hart, uh, Dr. David Hart, wanted to make a point about um, periods of time, and uh, so he he talked about e Eon and Eons at, 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 at that point in his book, and I'll go into that a little bit later. But uh, one of the things he talked about, too, was what the word logos meant. Because as he, as he says, uh, John the seer didn't, didn't, say, didn't write down, in the beginning was the word. He didn't, he didn't say it that way. That's our English translation. And now he says that's, an, that's a nice translation. It's a good translation. But he doesn't think it tells us the full extent of what John was trying to say when he used the word logos or logos. Um, I've heard it, I've heard that said a few a few ways. I've, I've always said logos, but I just say logos. Uh, so he goes into what the logos meant at the time of Jesus, and uh, so he quotes extensively from Philo of Alexandria, the the great Jewish scholar. Uh, by the way, you know Philo's brother who lived in Alexandria too and was a businessman was the richest man, I think in the world at the time, almost maybe a Roman emperor would have uh, beat him out. But when his wealth was uh, compared to uh, people today, uh, they, they compared to, they compared to Bill Gates and wow. people of that, of that level. So, that was good for Philo because Philo, because Philo's brother loved him, and Philo didn't have to worry about a thing. So, could work on philosophy. <laughs> so that was it. Philo uh, studied uh, Greek philosophy to the nth degree. He was a, a highly, highly educated man for his time. Plus, he was a very devout uh, Jewish man, and he knew the scriptures uh, backwards and forwards, and. So he comes up with his definition for with the for the logos, and uh, and um, David Hart brings this out how it 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 does mean the word, but also means so many other things. So he, uh, it means rationality. It means to write. It means to do. It means to live. It means to 
uh, grow. It means to educate. It means to build. It, it, it's, it, it, it goes on so far, uh, and these definitions that David Hart has laid his eyes on and looked directly at, and he is completely Greek-speaking, and he makes a point, too, that he's not just any Greek reader and speaker. I think he's uh, trying to uh, let the Protestants know what's what. He says he also has read all of the Greek classics, so he he just doesn't he, he he just doesn't know New Testament Greek, but he knows all the nuances of Greek that come from reading all of the 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 body of of classic uh, Greek literature, including his com- complete training in in Greek regarding Christianity as, and as a Greek Orthodox scholar. And lucky for us, he's he speaks English and he's. Um, he's very sure of himself and so to him the word is wonderful because it uh, it 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 meant all these things to anybody who was trained in anybody who had training uh, like Clement of Alexandria or or origin this is what that word meant to them and so he said the only word that he could find that would come close to what uh, the, the word logos means is the Tao. And I'm saying that right, aren't I? The, the Tao. Yes. Now the, yes. the Tao is the way, and, the, and, and I've seen, seen some translations of the Tao. I've read the Tao a number of times. I've read some books that uh, uh, say there that, the Tao or part of the Tao. Uh, and so I've seen that it is, uh, uh, also talks about it being a way of life. This is the way, of the, the, this is the way things are with birds. This is the way things are with human beings. This is the way a human being should treat a person who is uh, a, an aristocrat. And here's how a person should be if they're a wife. And here's what you should be if you, you're a worker um, at a trade and, and, here, here's uh, what you should do for your ancestors after they pass away, and on and on and on and on. So that's why he he put those. That's why he said uh, to him, uh, the Tao the Tao has this uh, hugely expansive description of things and meanings, and so he says of, of the logos too, and. Uh, and what is really especially interesting to me uh, is that makes the logos, uh, I don't know, it just makes it, it makes it more universal. Uh, it's not that I'm against uh, just saying Jesus Christ um, uh, is the Savior and so forth and so on, but uh, but the logos takes into account the Father. The Logos takes into account God. The Logos takes into account um, uh, demons. The Logos takes into account uh, the religious life. The Logos takes into account uh, normal life and uh, uh, life that is difficult. And it's the way. And it can show you the truth and so forth. 
Yeah, some have so, said uh, you could even call it the Force. I think George Lucas based the Force on the Tao. So did he? If people want a point of relation, that's what, that's another one. <laughs> yeah. What about the idea of the aeons? I mean, I think people, it's a confusing term because an aeon can, is more than one meaning, especially when you look at the Mendeans and their idea of the Uthras. An aeon is both a, a consciousness, a period of time, and a place. Like in these Gnostic Gospels, there's an aeon within an aeon and everything. So how does David Hart or you see the aeons? Well, you know, you're you're really very good at uh, interviewing. i got to tell you, I just feel very blessed to be interviewed by you because otherwise I would, I would, uh, I would, it would be much more difficult, but. I don't know. I just I enjoy the subject. It's, you know, like we were talking, model trains, you and I like ancient texts. <laughs> yes. Well, David Hart brings us up because I think he thinks it's extraordinarily important and it has become just recently extraordinarily important and it's uh i think it's a big deal a big deal is going on right now in christianity everybody's uh in christianity as a whole and uh there are, there are a lot of people who are, are kind of upset because what he says is this he says that uh, the word in greek and i'm not sure i'm pronouncing it correctly it's uh it's it's a i o n the word the letters a i o n aeon aeon yeah there's no right or wrong way because we weren't there <laughs> yeah it's well the Greek that gets translated into our English as eon is actually spelled in Greek a i o n that's well however that's translated I'm sorry however that's spoken in Greek I think it's Aeon, but I, I'm not quite sure. But it means the same thing. And so, first and foremost, he makes a point that it's a uh, finite period of time. And and he, he thinks this is really important for Christians to understand because uh, of all stripes, because um, so many people think that eons and eons and eons means eternity, and it doesn't. It means a long time and a long time and a long time. So it may be a very long time, but it's not eternity. And and then when you take the next word, eons, uh, and uh, I'm going to try and get around to everything you were talking about, but he, the next one, a eonios in in Greek, and I'm, that's probably wrong, but it's a i o n o n i. S Aeonios or OS. They people can look it up, but it's it is the equivalent to eons. Uh, instead of eon, it's eons. And so, if you're saying eons and eons and eons, even if you're saying eons and eons and eons and eons and eons, it's still a finite period of time. And in fact, what he says is that in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Uh, Greek, uh, I, I think it's essentially uh, true, but brought up less in the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint. But in the New Testament, it there is 
it's, there's rarely a time when hell is described as eternal. But it gets, but if a word is associated with eon or eons, often it's, it is translated as uh, damned eternally or uh, gone to hell uh, forever or it will burn in the fire endlessly and all that type of stuff does not exist. Most of the time it's, it'll be a temporary burning, <laughs> you know, it'll be temporary, temporary suffering in darkness. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the Buddhist concept of hell or even purgatory where they, you just burn off whatever negative is within you or outside of you. Yeah. And so that was the first and foremost thing he wanted to say. And he also, strangely, he, it, it does sound like purgatory because he says for uh, people, uh, they will be purified. And they at, after they're purified uh, for an eon or eons and eons, <laughs> uh, they'll actually then be able to return to uh, the eon of heaven or uh, to heaven. Uh, first level of heaven, second level of heaven, I'm not quite sure which, but, but uh, only a small number in the Gnostic literature end up actually uh, eternally uh, lost in some form of hell. That is in the Gnostic literature, and that is in the Christ- that is in the typical non-Gnostic uh, Christian literature too. Um, so, the, for but that's for a very small, very small number. I mean. Most of us probably agree that Hitler and you know deserves eons and eons and eons and eons and eons and then uh, there's quite a few verses where it also says unto destruction, so maybe he'll suffer for a ter- ter- terribly 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 long period of time and then he'll be annihilated now that seems maybe a little bit unfair but uh, Stalin would be another candidate for a person that, in my opinion, would I, I, can't, I can't imagine he'd have only one eon of suffering <laughs> and then you know pop up there. Sorry for killing fifty million people. Yeah, but, you yeah. Know. Whoops, whoopsie. <laughs> but James, uh, we probably, I think we probably should move on to very soon to the secret yeah. book of John while we have time, so we get the the climax of the gospel of truth. And listener, just uh, get his book, and you'll really understand this grand saga. But in the gospel of truth, you've got Jesus is nailed to a tree, and he basically becomes the tree of knowledge. So, quickly tell us how did the Valentinus view? the crucifixion of Jesus, the logos that appears in our material world of error? Well, it appears that uh, error is uh, uh, bothered by Jesus' message. And so he uh, tries to prevent Jesus from bringing uh, uh, knowledge of the Father Knowledge of salvation, knowledge of divine salvational knowledge, as uh, as we as I call gnosis or gnostic uh, understanding, and so to stop that um, from being uh, given to people, 
he has him nailed to a tree and he dies on the tree. But when he dies on the tree, uh, he becomes the fruit of, of the, uh, gospel. He becomes a fruit of the, of the, uh, scripture. So by his dying on the tree, which is really, uh, uh, the cross. Now, oftentimes, I mean, Paul himself in one of his letters called it uh, hung on a tree. So that word and the cross are, are sometimes used to mean each other. And so I actually put the word cross in there. I can't remember if it's actually in there or not. Well, and because it, it seems to me that what they're saying is, uh, or what was uh, they were attempting to say either Valen, Valentinus or Valentinians was that because he died and uh, they don't come right out and talk about uh, the uh, resurrection, but I think uh, they're suggesting in a way that because he died and what came after that, and I think they mean by that the resurrection. Uh, he becomes everything that he said and did is remembered. Uh, it becomes, you know, incredibly important, uh, and it's important for everybody to to uh, get together and remember what he said and write it down. And so his death becomes the fruit of the scripture of Christianity. Uh, and that scripture uh, of Christianity is also the skeleton upon which uh, Gnostic uh, uh, scripture uh, lies too. So both things are given birth out of that. And so his his uh, his his death means life for many. So uh, that's in the Gospel of Truth. And so uh, he died. But his scripture, which teaches um, uh, the way to uh, live, uh, to, to love other people, to care about other people, um, and so forth, that comes from his death. Otherwise, he might have died uh, as just one other failed Messiah, um, as so many other so many others before him had. At least that's how I interpret. Uh, that material well said and yes it's a it's a beautiful gospel it ends uh a very i keep saying it poetically but it's very inspirational sometimes i i love to to pray some of the words towards the end about uh don't let the devil in your heart and all that but at the end we could talk about this for many aeons and aeons and aeons but we should <laughs> probably give the uh the sethians their due too they're in the corner going hey what about us we're the surly sethians what about our text the secret book of john so let's talk about that in our second part of our interview first in regard to the gospel of truth or moving forward to the sethians in the secret book of john vance do you have a question for james on the secret book of John, or on the, uh, are we done with the gospel of truth? We're done with the gospel of truth, either backwards or forward, wherever you'd like to go. Oh, I, I did have a couple of questions. I'll limit them, though. Did you do anything in your translation, James, about the negative opinion of beauty 
or did you pretty much leave that the way it was in, in the gospel of truth? The negative opinion of beauty. I, I'm, I can't write at the moment. Do you have it right in front of you to bring up that, bring up the lines because it's, um, I don't have your translation. I have the uh, Barnstone and Meyer translation in front of me. Can you read a little part of it for me? I sure will. Because I must have translated it in another way. Okay. It says, but she worked her material, this is error, on, uh, uh, she worked on her material substance vainly because she did not know the truth. She assumed a fashioned figure while she was preparing in power and in beauty, the substitute for truth. So it's saying okay. that beauty is a substitute. Okay, so here we're talking about Sophia, and she's working on the uh, she's working with matter, material, and so forth uh, uh, to fashion a uh, a substitute for God, a substitute for the Father. So she's she's trying to make a high eon and show everybody above her, including the father, um, who sometimes is her consort, or she sometimes is consort, she sometimes appears to be a lower uh, um, Sophia and independent and not a a consort and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, this is talking about Sophia fashioning Yaldabaoth. She's taking the materials uh, and uh, she, she has uh, uh, reproductive ability. She has the ability. She has the ability of a god, uh, uh, with a small g in this case. And I think uh, there's a there's a writer right now, Michael Heiser, Heiser who's uh, talking a lot about the divine council, which really comes from the Old Testament. And um, but the, and it's a new it's in the New Testament too, but it's uh, it's something we should take a second look at. Um, so she's acting with her powers as a goddess with a small g, but still that is tr- tr- tremendous power compared to a normal human being, a mortal human being. And she's she develops a substitute for beauty. So the the, the father and his word and that's that's beautiful. But he he may look beautiful. Um, Yaldabaoth. He may be, uh, of course, Yaldabaoth is transmorgified into Satan later on by the Cathars. They just don't beat around the bush. They just say he's Satan. Satan was known to be beautiful uh, as a male, a, a beautiful male. You know, maybe he had a six pack and big muscles and, you know, good looking guy, <laughs> tall. And, and, uh, and also he had great power. Because Sophia had great power, he had great power, although not like the father, mother, or the son. And so um, uh, he's a substitute for the beauty of the father, but he's a a false uh, figure. And and that's what I think that verse is talking about. So it, oh, um, so the figure Does is that make a sense? substitute for truth. Yeah, the figure is a substitute for truth, and not beauty is the substitute for truth. Or maybe yeah, his his uh, read the verse to me again because the beauty. Just read yeah. me the verse again. Yeah, she assumed a fashion figure while she was preparing, in power and in beauty, the substitute for truth. Yeah, she she 
she makes Yaldabaoth, and he he appears beautiful, and he's and he is a a, a, a god of uh, of the earth, uh, like Paul's uh, the god of this earth. He's that powerful, and he uh, he he is a, he can uh, speak, and what he seems to say is um, the truth and. Uh, but in fact, it's not the truth, and um, it's half truths, it's lies. Despite the fact that he appears beautiful, he's really ugly. He's he's, he's a monster, in fact. <laughs> and um, so that's what I, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I translated it a little bit differently. I don't have it right in front of me, and I don't have my whole uh, uh, secret revelation of John memorized. But that's what that is talking about. I hope that. Oh, helps. thank you. Yeah, it does. You know, I think I misread it. I read it a different way. So, okay, Miguel, I think that's it. Let's move on uh, to the next one. All right. Do you have a question for Secret Jong while we're, we're we got a rhythm going here, or the Sethians? Oh yeah, the Sethians. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, James, uh, the Sethians. Would you call them Christian? Because uh, you know, from what I've learned about them so far, it's almost like a lot of the things about Jesus got tacked on to the Sethians, and they were even more hooked up to John the Baptist as opposed to Jesus. But well, what's your view on that? Well, I I must admit I'm not a Sethian scholar, but they are a interesting, mysterious group of people, are they not? Um, where did they yeah. come from? And the books they left us with, I mean... You could just say they, were, they came from aliens. That always gets us out of any sort of argument. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Ancient alien I, theorists. Yeah. <laughs> say yes. <laughs> they were in the History Channel. They show up. Um, I've read some things about people think that they were a, a Jewish sect that was a variant Jewish sect. Uh, that was moving towards Gnosticism, and they were heavily into baptism, and uh, they hooked up with other baptizers, which uh, was the burgeoning Christian uh, church, or, and and hooked up with them, and then uh, uh, kind of took on uh, Christianity for a while. Um, and it, they were highly creative. I mean, the, the number of books that they wrote. Um, certainly, it seems to me that whoever these Sethians were, I mean, of course, we're talking about people that are supposed to have secret teachings from the third son of Adam, who was a righteous man. Um, and so Seth, the Sethians, were supposed to have had some teachings before they came into contact with the Christians. Uh, I mean, literally, <clears throat> or if you want to take it literally, they were righteous people prior to coming into contact with the Christians. And then for some reason, they hooked up with them for a while. And I know from what I've read that they did live cheek by jowl with Christians, with the normal Christians. And when they were asked what they were, they said, I'm a Christian. They didn't say, I'm a Scythian Christian. And wait till I show you the secret uh, or the Apocryphon of John or the secret uh, Revelation of John. It'll blow your mind. Yeah, you we have a Revelation couple of exceptions. Something. I think Marcelina and then a couple others of exceptions of these groups calling themselves Gnostics. But yeah, 99% of the time they call themselves Christians. 
Yeah, there are some exceptions. Uh, you're right. And the, the O fights, I think, later on. I uh, don't want to talk about the O fights. Oh, that's a whole... We've done complete shows on them and the Nassines oh, yeah. and all that. But it is interesting, speaking of the O fights, I don't know, would you say Secret John is as John Turner, and may he rest in peace, he passed away uh, last year in the fall, uh, oh, really? a great mind, yes, but he posited that Secret John might be a sort of a mishmash, that the creation story of Barbalo and the Invisible Spirit is the Sethian. And then when you get to the Garden of Eden and Yaldabaoth and the Rebellion of Man, that's sort of the Ophites. Do you see that, or do you think it's one harmonious text? And, of course, Stephen Davis has said it might have been non-Christian, and then later on, Christians added the, you know, the beginning with Jesus and the Apostle John talking and all that. Yeah, I, I don't have strong feelings at this point in time about uh, uh, whether whether it was pre-Christian or not. I, I tend to think it was not pre-Christian. Um, so uh, it, it it might have started off, I mean, sometimes there are, it, it, there are changes that are jarring in the secret revelation of John. And of course it starts off with a, a biblical story of uh, John meeting the, uh, the rabbi uh, who tells him he's, Jesus has led him astray and he's, he's um, doesn't even know his own people and their, their history and so forth. And so John goes up to the mountain, he's upset. And he comes out, it's all very biblical. And then Jesus comes uh, in a vision, and it's, behold, he's a child, and then behold, he's a, a teenager, and behold, he's an old man. Uh, it's really quite quite beautiful. Yeah, and he's a mother, too. Uh, I always liked it. The, the Sethians, the supreme reality was what? Father, mother, and child. And Jesus encompasses that. Yeah, he is, well... Um, you could almost say that Barbello uh, takes into account everything. Um, it, well, first you have uh, God, and you have the monad, who's the one good God, and that's that's an important thing for uh, I think for Gnostics to remember that the, the concept of the one God, uh, even though there's Yaldabaoth, the god of uh, earth, and so forth. The one God is the good God, the platonic good God. Um, he doesn't have much to do with uh, the riffraff of the universe and so forth, but um, uh, he brings about the Father, and the Father is a is a loving figure uh, as it's brought out in the Gospel of Truth. And then there's the Mother, which is uh, also the Holy Spirit, and uh, she too is... Sophia, uh, higher Sophia, the greater Sophia, whatever you want to call her. And then there's uh, the son. So you, you have the father, the mother, and the son. You have this trinity constantly being brought up. But you also have God, and you have the father. Uh, and uh, you, you, uh, when, when you put those all together, then, then you have Barbello. And Barbello... I'm not saying I'm giving a definitive definition of Barbello here, but Barbello always takes into account God, 
the father, the mother, and the son. And so Barbello had, although Barbello mostly shows up as a she and as a her, and mostly in the feminine guise of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Mother, nevertheless, there's uh, elements of her that are masculine that are brought out. Um, uh, the virgin um, thrice, thrice, uh, male virgin or thrice powerful male, you know, she's, there are masculine characteristics. And to me, Barbello is kind of a way of stating that uh, God is not just a man, which is in our normal canonical scripture. God is not just a man, uh, and he's not just a woman, and he's not just a father, and he's not just a mother, he's more. And so for me, the word Barbello, which is kind of our secret word because other Christians look at it. I know what I felt like the first time I looked at it. Barbello, what the heck is that? You know, but uh, Barbello takes into account. I thought of Barbarella with Jane Fonda. I don't know why. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) The way I'm pronouncing it, probably. But anyway, so that's kind of my conception of Barbello. I know there's there's many there's many uh, scholars that have said I think it's this, I think it's that. Their L is in there, Bar the Sun is in there. Um, but um, and I, I think um, it, it's been called maybe God in four. Um, uh, I think it was by uh, William Barnstone. And it may, and he interpreted that as being Yahweh, Y H W H. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, there's a lot of definitions around it, but the most easy concept for me to grasp is that Barbello takes into account God, which is the good God above all, and kind of above it all, and above the fray, and but good. And therefore, the universe is good. Even though there may be this local cosmos where the earth is, where things are bad, overall it's good. This is the way I interpret it, and I don't expect everybody to accept that and interpret it that way, but that's how I see it. And it takes into account uh, all these other figures. And, of course, the mother in the Gnosticism, uh, mother or holy mother means Holy Spirit and may be derived from the Jewish term, for the spirit of holiness, which is uh, gendered as feminine. And there's also what's behind, I believe, I may say this wrong, but the Shekinah. Uh, is that the right word? I say Shekinah, but uh, again, Shekinah, I don't think there's Shekinah. a right or wrong way to say it. <laughs> so that's Shakira kind of my... in the Super Bowl, is that what you're thinking, man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you say Shekinah, and I say Shekinah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, uh, so that's kind of my, because as I was translating and putting it down over and over again, um, these there would be this association of Barbello with these other figures. Um, and so it was almost shorthand for, uh, maybe for people at that time who didn't have uh, a computer that has Uh, three-quarters of all the world's knowledge in it at their fingertips, and they were being given a way to understand that uh, God is so much more. God is so much more than 
uh, a father uh, or a man or uh, a woman, a goddess, or or any one thing. And so Barbello, uh, for me, kind of takes that into account. However, it's 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 a a slightly shocking word because you I've never come across it anywhere except in uh, uh, Gnostic literature. So it's uh, maybe a unique word from the Sethians. And it sure seems that uh, the uh, heresiologist uh, Irenaeus um, mentions significantly uh, um, or talks about the Barbellolites and people that uh, he appears to consider um, worship Barbello. At least that's, I'm, I may not have that right, quite right, but uh, that was a feeling I got that they felt that some sects of uh, Gnosticism uh, were completely devoted to Barbello. All right. Well, uh, yeah, like I said, I really enjoyed the translations. I think it's worth it. So audience, if you're interested in these texts, this is a, a good place to, uh, to go because James, again, uh, there's a way he makes them a little bit more Christian. They're more approachable. And in many ways, the translations are more accessible, as he says, than some of the other ones. And uh, some of them are straightforward. And uh, his uh, commentary I enjoyed, too, because it's a great refresher to understanding these Gnostic texts. So, James, really appreciate you creating truth. What is truth? I think anybody interested in Gnosticism or early Christianity will benefit greatly from your translations. And I really appreciate you coming on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio and uh, sharing your work with us. Thank you very much. I'm honored, Miguel. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our interview with James Brattingham. You thought Yaldi Baldi was bad and Sophia was majestic? Well, now you get to see them both joined in the aspect of the Valentinian error. In our second part, we'll certainly unpack more about the figure of error. We'll shift to the secret book of Juan, from its soteriology to its history to its cosmology. James will tell us more about Barbalo, the Supreme Mother, as well as a lot about Yaldabaoth, including what his name might really mean. James will then insert the work of Dean Radin to give perspective to the visionary works of the Gnostics, then move on to who were the Sethians and what exactly is a counterfeit spirit. We'll finally get into the Gospel of Mary from many perspectives, including its central theology of what exactly is sin. And much, much more. More than an hour more. I recommend you also listen to past shows on these works or get my books, Voices of Gnosticism and Other Voices of Gnosticism where lauded historians and the very translators of the Nag Hammadi Library lay it all down concerning the Gnostics. Regardless, please become an AB Prime member or patron at Patreon for the full dope. It really helps grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle. 
You won't find this Gnostic content anywhere else in cyberspace or meat space. Membership includes full access to the archives with more than 13 years of high-quality interviews and full episodes of my vlog, The Abraxas Brief. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I do have an Amazon wish list if you want to keep that in mind. Regardless, I can't do it without you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true, authentic self. Hello and goodbye as always. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.